Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Sarah Larniak. Senior producer of Canada Land's Monday series, occasional war correspondent, and pursuer of a Master of Science degree in global energy and climate policy. Welcome to Shortcuts. Hi, Jonathan. This is maybe what it's like to sort of like when someone from Buffy shows up on Angel, or maybe it's like <laughs> when you visit a neighbor in your apartment building and look around the apartment and are like, yeah, this is pretty much the same as where I live, but like also kind of different. I'm a guest star <laughs> on Shortcuts here. I'm Jonathan Goldsby, filling in for Jesse. I don't know where he is right now. Maybe far away, maybe close by, and in any case, I'm the one right here. Today on the show, we'll be talking about the changing perceptions of the former partner of the Nova Scotia mass shooter, as well as the heat wave in Europe and thwarting the apocalypse through journalism. Welcome to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. This episode is brought to you by Berkeley State, Owen Bradshaw, Dean Bavington, Nelson Melgar, Teresa Wrights, Christopher Hinchcliffe, amazing names these, Kevin Delaney, and Antonia. I'm Antonia, a Sejap teacher in Montreal, and I support Canada Land because I think that their investigation and reporting are important contributions to our political culture, and I'm proud to support a unionized media room. I especially appreciate Emily Nicolas' nuanced discussion of Quebec politics and the addition of Detour to the lineup. Plus, having the ad-free feed is worth it, if only to avoid hearing Jesse talk about manscaping. This segment includes discussions and descriptions of domestic violence. The wife of the Nova Scotia mass shooter shares her story. Lisa Banfield was the longtime partner and common-law spouse of the man who killed 22 people back in 2020. He put the bed to my head um, to scare me. And before it was over, some relatives of victims had stormed out. In the inquiry into the Nova Scotia mass shooting, Lisa Banfield took the stand this past week. And it's been interesting to see how it may have or appears to have shifted the public's perception and even the media perception of her role in all of this. Sarah, from what you can recall seeing or hearing up until this month, what was your understanding of how Lisa Banfield fit into all of this? I mean, I think I was probably particular in what content I chose to consume about her. There was a a really great Front Burner episode a few months ago that very much looked at how much guilt people should try to assign to someone who's injured domestic abuse. 
And I think that I've very consciously tried to consume content that, that reflects that perspective. I have been pretty open about the fact that I've personally experienced coercive control in a relationship. And I just feel very strongly. Obviously, it was nothing, nothing like what she experienced. Mm. But I just really don't think people can judge the decisions that are made when you, you, you cannot understand the psychological impact of financial abuse, of isolation from the people who love you, the physical abuse. You cannot downplay what that does to a person and what that means. To the extent I've been in, looked into the story at all, it was actually through mm-hmm. some of Candleland's own coverage. Mm-hmm. So just to give the context here, so when Gabriel Wortman killed 22 people on April 18th and 19th, 2020, his common law partner was not among them, obviously. Instead, as she told the RCMP, she was hiding out in the woods, having freed herself from his vehicle after being tied mm-hmm. up there. And in certain quarters, doubt has been cast in this story. So, for example, author Paul Polango was on Canada Land's Monday show last year. You know, the whole reliance on Wortman's girlfriend's story that she came out of the woods at 6.30 in the morning in this improbable, hoary story. And she told them, he's in a police car and da-da-da-da-da. Well, why did they buy into that story? Why are they accepting that story? Why is she not talking? That's not explained by anything. He talked about, though, how her story was suspicious, right? Like, how did she possibly survive in the woods? I've definitely heard those threads. Polango cast doubt on Banfield's account because an eyewitness had been dubious of it. But as time went on, the facts increasingly supported her story and the skepticism increasingly appeared to have been unfounded. A couple pieces recently, one by uh, Tim Bousquet in the Halifax Examiner, what he described as the vilification of Lisa Banfield. He called it the, the witchification. And certainly it gets a very good column in the Globe and Mail by Robin Urbach. The title saying, the spouse of the Nova Scotia shooter was another one of his victims. Very effectively and pointedly saying that. Well, and in that piece, I think the need to try and vilify Lisa Banfield comes from this very human desire to have someone to blame. And in that piece, Robin Urbach makes the point of if she was dead, we we wouldn't be trying to blame her. And I think we have to look at what that means because I think that she's right. I think that Robin Urbach is right. I think we need someone who's alive to blame and Gabrielle Warman can't be that person. So people want to blame Lisa Banfield. And I think it's inappropriate, but I think we can also understand where it comes from. And so as Tim Bousquet put it in the Halifax Examiner, even quite bluntly, the intro is kind of florid, but it's, I'm sure it's accurate in the context of <laughs> the discussions in Nova Scotia. There is a campaign of lies, innuendo, misogyny, and hatred directed against Lisa Banfield. The goal apparently is to destroy her. And then further mm-hmm. down, I found this particular paragraph interesting. And yet, even as Banfield was testifying Friday, the campaign against her continued, especially on social media, but also in the pages of a particular local media outlet. Completely without evidence, the campaigners assisted that Banfield must have been complicit in the murders and was therefore lying during her testimony. There are some particular reasons why Banfield may have been regarded with suspicion. In late 2020, she was charged with having illegally provided the perpetrator with ammunition. Uh, That charge was withdrawn this past spring after she agreed to participate in a restorative justice program. No longer facing that charge, she was free to testify before the Mass Casualty Commission uh, without risk of self-incrimination. That's the inquiry into what happened and how police responded and how related issues of intimate partner violence and access to firearms 
figured in. Because of the commission's trauma-informed approach, uh, they turned down a request from the families of those killed to allow the family's own lawyer to cross-examine Banfield. Consequently, partway through Banfield's testimony, those family members actually walked out in protest. Another piece of this is that the RCMP in Nova Scotia, like the RCMP everywhere and like police more generally, have often been less than forthcoming when it comes to details, in this case details about exactly what unfolded over the 13 hours of the perpetrator's rampage and in particular about what the police knew and when. And, you know, all that official caginess created a needless vacuum in which all kinds of theories flourished, some of which were built on shakier evidence than others. And you see this anger, not just anger directed toward, but culpability pinned on someone who by all appearances, was herself a victim. I think this mass shooting brought out the worst aspects of, you know, the human experience, like the need for blame, the want for anger and hatred to take over, and the need for suspicion. Also, like, I mean, we're dealing with the same things that we're dealing with in disinformation campaigns, where people love to feel like they know something no one else does. And when you can't trust official sources, it leaves a lot more room for that, too. Mm. Having come from the experience I did, it's informed the types of stories that I'm doing. We did the episode on the Monday show about the divorce system that looked at how broken the divorce system in Canada is and what exit strategies are actually available to people who are in her circumstance. And that they aren't, in fact, answers at all in many cases, the most extreme example in that episode that we talked about was one where a divorce then led to a child dying. And I don't know how we sit around and blame someone for their actions when we also don't provide any avenues for exit for people who are experiencing domestic violence. The resources are there, but the roads are still nearly impossible. So support resources are available but the roads to an exit are still nearly impossible. So I don't know where we get off blaming this woman for something that someone else did. I do think our coverage is improving when it comes to domestic violence. I mean, things like having a full podcast series done by Anna Maria Tremonti, Welcome to Paradise, that showed that this can happen to anyone, no matter how intelligent, how strong you are. People end up in circumstances that they never imagined without an escape and their brain tells them to make decisions that don't make sense. In in that, not to spoil the whole thing for anyone who's not heard it, but in that podcast, she talks about how her ex-husband said, if you don't leave, I'm going to kill you. And she came back. Okay. Like this isn't a decision that another person can understand and look at critically and say like, oh, well, she must be insane or like, she must have wanted it. No, she was abused and it very much changes psychology. And we are getting better as an industry at covering it and understanding it. But the fact is that Lisa Banfield is now caught in the middle of it. And I'm really sorry for her. I am truly sorry that she is the person whose expense our learning is coming at as an industry.
So, Sarah, on this program, we duly note things. Sarah, what would you like to note duly? You know, I want to duly note something that wasn't a headline at all. In fact, I came across it on my Instagram feed from my lovely friend, Katie May, who works at the Free Press, and who's just like one of those wonderful, incredible reporters who just like plugs away and is incredible at her job. But what she posted on her Instagram was a sound clip from Someone Knows Something, Season 7, Episode 2, where host David Ridgen was just talking about his experience in investigating these murders that were committed against doctors who performed abortions. And his note was that... Unlike other police I've contacted, Winnipeg seems reluctant to help in any way on my endeavor, so... I can't confirm what may have been done or said prior to Dr. Feynman's shooting. And I wanted to duly note this because it's just so unsurprising, because this is just absolutely run-of-the-mill, what we would call a pattern of behavior for the Winnipeg Police Service. Like, months ago, Katie was also reporting on a complaint that was filed to the Law Enforcement Review Agency, where a photojournalist at the Winnipeg Sun had complained after having all of his equipment confiscated by an officer, obviously. And so that all is going through the proceedings there. When I was on the CAJ board, we issued a statement indicting the uh, Winnipeg Police Service for the fact that they actually intervened when Winnipeg Free Press reporter Ryan Thorpe was trying to get video of an officer-involved incident. They confiscated the witness's phone. So, like, this is repeated behavior of Winnipeg police trying to get in the way of media doing their job. And I just wanted to note that duly because it has become such a way of being in this city that uh, it just seems like we should talk about it more. Duly noted. Now, I have a duly noted. So, the TV was on playing the national as it does last night. I happened to catch this little bit and I pulled it up on YouTube after. She's like, did I hear what I thought I heard? So the CBC doing a story about coping with inflation and they spoke to their regular personal finance expert, Rubina Ahmed Hawk, who offered some advice for dealing with rising housing costs. One way that you can mitigate that is by speaking to your employer about getting a raise. Uh, with inflation the way that it is going, um, it is completely reasonable right now, especially in this tight labor market, to go to your employer and say, I need you to bump my wage because it's becoming impossible for me to still survive in the city that I was hired in. And if that doesn't work, looking for another job, especially if you've got skills that are in demand, will often give you the bump that you need in order to afford that apartment and that rent that goes with it. I, I can hear a whole bunch of people at home going, so my boss will say no. Mm. Yeah, and that's and that's a fair point. <laughs> uh, I, yeah. I, I'm at home oh my thinking God. that. <laughs> it reminded me of, of this Onion story from 2014. Uh, report, 95% of grandfathers got job by walking right up and just asking. <laughs> Which in turn reminded me that, that that's kind of how Adrienne Arsenault, who you've heard on the clip there, got her start at yeah. the CBC. I just want to read this quick passage from when she was named one of the anchors of The National back in 2017. Arsenault has been close to The National since her CBC career began. She started as an editorial assistant in 1991, but actually had an interview lined up for her then dream job at CBC Radio's As It Happens. She got lost in the CBC building and wound up in the National Newsroom, where someone offered her a job on the spot. Now, 26 years later, she is poised for one of the show's top jobs. Now, five years, I think, after that, she is now the sole host of The National, or will be imminently. The host of The National. So yeah. congratulations to her. I do like her. She's, she's great. But why? I 
cannot believe that that was still a way to get a job at the CBC <laughs> as recently as 1991. I guess that was before they put in the enormous doors that are blue and say the national, I guess. Ah. Anyway, I think Jesse's just going to be really devastated when we both walk into his office and ask for 8.1% raises or we quit to keep up with inflation. <laughs> Jesse, I demand a raise. <laughs> Duly noted. Searing, unrelenting heat. Europe baking and burning. A dangerous heat wave gripping a sizzling swath of the continent. The heart of England, today hotter than the Caribbean and Western Sahara. It is the first time in history that the UK has been under this kind of extreme heat warning. Flights were suspended when parts of the runway were reportedly softening. So, Sarah, what's the weather like in Winnipeg right now? You know what? It's been pretty hot, but it's all relative now, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in Toronto, as we record this on Wednesday, it's a high of 31. In Rome, it's supposed to be a high of 38. In Berlin, 37. Uh, in London, the, the good London, the UK one, it's back down to a pleasantly dreary 26. But yesterday it was 40. F 40, which has never happened before. And only seldom in recorded history has it come even remotely close. And they beat the last record by a full degree and a half. It's not oh, like, yeah. oh, uh, you know, a tenth of a degree here from three years ago, a full degree and a half. So, yeah, it's hot. Yeah, it's hot and it's gotten a lot hotter a lot more quickly. So I was curious to see the extent to which Canadian and UK papers have been drawing the connection between these extreme heat events and climate change. Mm -hmm. And particularly just looking, you know, in the, frankly, in the most superficial way, because I figure if you don't already know that there's this link, then uh, if it's not in a headline or a front page, it may not occur to you. And the fun thing about British newspapers is just how many of them there are and how different they are from each other. You know, in the UK, the newspapers over the past four days are, well, you'd expect Britain burns in 40.3 degrees Celsius heat. Britain's burning, blowtorch Britain, uh, hottest day ever, meltdown Monday. They, they have a lot of fun with this. Uh, and not surprisingly, you know, The Guardian slash its weekend edition, The Observer, has done a really good job of clearly drawing a connection to climate change in its headlines. Mm -hmm. Wednesday's headline is, a wake-up call, UK hits highest ever temperature the wake-up call in quotes. We're good at catastrophe as an industry. I would say that this has absolutely demonstrated how good the media is at covering uh, devastating events. Mm. If we're also good at covering, you know, the context of those devastating events in the context of climate change, it's another question. Oh, no, absolutely. And there's definitely a direct correlation between how, not just a paper's political leanings, but how regularly and comprehensively they cover climate change outside of, you know, these mm -hmm. specific catastrophic consequences and, frankly, how they frame the catastrophes while they're happening. I wouldn't say that's exclusively what differentiates outlets, though, because a political yeah. leaning will absolutely change things. But so does just, like, investment in the coverage all the time, you know? Like, there's some outlets that have just come oh, yeah. leaps and bounds ahead of others, just globally um, and and locally. This isn't just, like, a UK thing, but... The one outlet that's obviously pushed the UK to do this better is The Guardian. They were the first to really start investing in, like, long-term climate coverage. And then, like, others have followed. Like, Bloomberg is knocking their climate coverage out of the park. And I think that was spurred both by, like, The Guardian, but also places like The Washington Post and The New York Times going all in on climate change. And we're not seeing the full spread investment the same way in Canadian media outlets, I don't think. 
political leaning is one indicator. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, it's definitely like it is reflective of, of of the larger investment in these stories. Mm-hmm. Like even the Globe and the Star yesterday, like Toronto Star, extreme heat grips Europe. Just even having the word climate at the top is like as matter of factly under a climate mm-hmm. heading. Or the Globe, extreme heat sears Britain. Scientists warn that scorching temperatures across continent could become the norm because of climate change. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a very fucking low bar to Absolutely. you know state the obvious and state the factual thing and to give a basic factual basis for once again, this what's going on in the world, but it's not nothing. And it is, I will say at the very least, from my perspective, it is appreciated. But one, even if it's like not by itself going to do much. It is an incredibly low bar, but we also have to like remember how fast we've moved that bar up, which is encouraging. It's not fast enough in my personal opinion. Oh. But I mean, just years ago, we were still debating whether or not this was real, whether or not it was man-made like this is all established Mm -hmm. and we've stopped debating it in the media which i think for the most part anyway and now we are moving on to like okay we've we've heightened the bar now can we please connect these catastrophic events to climate change it does seem that this heat wave the global media is doing better at connecting it but it also is a perception sometimes because you think when you see unprecedented in a headline, they, you know, make that connection. And a lot of the times, if you look, they actually don't. Last year, I actually did a full evaluation of Canadian media outlets. There was a couple international outlets that made it into the mix. Coverage of prairie drought fires and the heat wave last summer in BC. And so I evaluated digital online outlets. And I found that even last summer, only 30 out of 100 articles even referenced climate change. So if we have this perception that we're doing better, even that low bar, historically speaking, very recent history would say that we're not really up to snuff yet. Yeah, I guess that is the question is like, certainly in my bubble, it's hard for me to imagine just having an extended conversation with anyone on a day-to-day basis who happens to not take for granted the link between climate change and more frequent and extreme weather events. Uh, And I imagine it's probably similar in your circles, but I could also imagine there are many parts of the country where might still be heresy to put that forward to suggest that, where it might not get the same reaction. Well, I will say that, like, reporting from the prairies from Calgary and now from Winnipeg, it isn't a given that people accept that. It's more and more Mm -hmm. accepted that climate change is happening and in the more reticent circles. Okay. They balk at the idea that it's man-made climate change, which is kind of the next hurdle to clear with the general public. Like, And that's why we do need to make these connections. It's like, yeah, okay, in our journalists' bubble, maybe that is largely accepted. There are still segments of the population, an alarming mm-hmm. number of people in the general population who don't understand and who still don't believe it. And if we don't put this forward factually, then what are we doing? One thing worth noting is that there's a difference in attribution. I find that in most articles, even in TV pieces, journalists will throw to an expert and let the expert say, this is absolutely a result of climate change. This is expected to be one of the hottest places in the world. Heat could hit up to 41 degrees by tomorrow. And uh, one expert told us that this is because of climate change and that the UK in particular, it's not ready for this. Not ready for 40 degrees heat as is forecast tomorrow. We, we haven't experienced it before. The infrastructure is not set up for this sort of situation. Still, journalists don't feel comfortable enough stating that as a fact themselves. And I think that's 
kind of alarming in and of itself because the resources available to us now, if you just bother to look, are so wide and just can explain to you how much you can say factually, how far you can go and how far the connections can be made. And I just think that we're still lacking in that front. We just like, we need to get the expert. We need them to say it because we don't feel comfortable saying it. And we need to get comfortable with climate data. We need to get comfortable with the science. It's the same thing as the pandemic. No one was like asking a doctor to say COVID-19 was killing people. We just knew that it was killing people, right? So we need to get to the level of comfortability we started getting with pandemic coverage and climate coverage, and we're not there yet. The article is from last September. But uh, one of the most interesting things in there was something you noticed that Canadian Press had recently added to its mm -hmm. style book. Could you talk about that? Yeah. So they actually are asking, no, they are prescribing for journalists that, that these connections can be made and they can be made factually because there is a difficulty in attributing an individual event to climate change. You cannot say, okay, this heat wave was caused by climate change often. In this case of Europe, scientists have allowed us to do that. However, sometimes, you know, a storm happens, you can't say this is because of climate change. But what the CP style guide says is that you can go and say, okay, this storm occurred, this kind of storm is more likely to happen, the intensity of them is likely to increase over time because of a warming climate. And that level of confidence in our reporting, I don't see that. Mm, really? At least not regularly. There are, of course, standouts. Nicole Mortolero wrote an article with the headline, European heatwave isn't a surprise. It's a warning of what inaction could mean for our future. And this is the example of what we want to see in climate reporting. It gives you the basic facts of what's happening. It's not at the detriment of covering the current events, but it also gives you all of the context. It points you to the resources that people need to have. It points you to the UK Met Office. It points you to climate experts. It points you to how long this has been coming and how much of a surprise this isn't. It also points you to what I find is the most alarming gap in coverage, which is mortalities. Heat-related deaths is the easiest line to draw between human death and climate change because causation is sometimes a difficult thing here. But they have very good tracking in the United Kingdom as far as how many people have died in heat waves, how many people are dying in this heat wave. And that seems to be missing. Like 40 degrees should not surprise us. It is happening faster than climate scientists were expecting, but still we always knew it was coming. And the UK is fascinating because they have some of the biggest climate mines in the world, right? And so they've had reports made by their civil service that have absolutely laid out a framework for how the UK should be responding, how the UK should be preparing for a warmer world. And yet a lot of those actions weren't taken. And so what I'm not seeing is any level of accountability coverage. I'm not really seeing any level of coverage of the deaths that are definitely happening beyond saying, oh, maybe a thousand people are dying. So if you look at the heat wave just from last year in the UK, they had three events 2,556 deaths were attributed to heat waves. Of the reported deaths, it's estimated that 95% of them are people 65 plus, most at risk in care homes. And I have yet to see cameras at care homes saying like people are dying here. It echoes much of what we saw in the pandemic where there's just holes in our coverage. It's like, oh, it's people in a splash pad. 
Like, no, that's actually not the problem. You know, people who have access to resources like that are not the problem. It's people who are vulnerable. It's people in care homes. And in the UK, all of the scientific research shows that the UK care homes have not adapted to climate change despite multiple calls from their civil service to do so. I imagine that everyone has internalized the fact that there is a direct connection between these things. Imagine Mm -hmm. that it is fair to take for granted that, well, everyone knows this is happening and this is why this is happening. And even potentially like what the effects of it are. If the role of media, you know, ideally is not just to document the apocalypse, but hopefully to avert it or Mm -hmm. at least mitigate it if it's possible to mitigate an apocalypse. So what's next, I guess, is the question. It's not necessarily about mitigating the apocalypse. It's about doing what we have always done best. It's about accountability. What have governments known and what have they not acted on? Guess what? A lot. It's about speaking out for the most vulnerable. Who are the most impacted by this heat wave? Most of the reports will say that it's older people, but they haven't taken the extra step of going to care homes, looking at the fact that care homes have not adapted. This is stuff that journalism is set up to do. And then, I mean, beyond that, stretching far past this heat wave and into regular coverage, we have to incorporate it every single day. What are we not doing? What is new science revealing? What policies are or are not being implemented? They're everywhere. Like, I've reported on the climate beat for several years, and I don't even know where to start most days because... The stories are everywhere, and they're not touched by very many people. And so the ability to just dig in and find low-hanging fruit is imaginable. Come join us. That's Shortcuts for this week. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me, Sarah. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure discussing, you know, the most deeply dark things that we can. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. I'm Jonathan Goldsby. You can email me if you so wish at Jonathan at CanadaLand.com. I think I know some of the answers. Where can people find you, Sarah? Well, easier to spell is Sarah at CanadaLand.com if you want to send me an email. But on Twitter, it is first name, dot last name, Sarah Larnuk. And you can find me there if you want to as well. Oh, and I'm on Twitter at, at Goldsby. This episode is produced by Viva Lassard with additional production by Tristan Capacchione. Our managing editor is Karen Oudsorn. Theme music is by So-Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Find them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do and you'd like to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, please support us by hitting the link in our show notes or go to candleland.com slash join. In France, in the 13th century, a teenager ascends the throne. He seems calm, collected, and as it happens, drop-dead gorgeous. But looks can be deceiving, and no one is ready for the death, destruction, and chaos that lie ahead. Step inside the reign of one of the Middle Ages' most cold-blooded rulers on This Is History presents The Iron King. Available wherever you get your podcasts. 
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, (laughs) you you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.